point in the service, there is a primary church for those in kindergarten through second grade. You're welcome to that. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 13. There's a typo on my slide. It should be 10 through 21. And you can follow along in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or whatever is convenient for you. So I say to you, hear the word of God. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox and his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would, um, you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray where there was bondage and guilt, you would bring freedom. I pray where there is legalism, you would bring grace. I pray uh, where there is shame, you would bring mercy. Father, I pray that you would come and be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. And amen. You know, when Judy and I moved to Seattle in 1997, we moved here to plant a church and we, we bought a house in Capitol Hill. And almost immediately, I was asked by some businessmen in downtown Seattle to do a, do a Thursday morning men's Bible study. It was six in the morning on Thursdays. And I'll never forget the first time I took the bus down the hill from, we live near Volunteer Park, I took the, took the bus down the hill into downtown, and the bus stopped, you know, I don't know, it was, it was 4th Street or something, and I had to go to 2nd or 1st, and I got off the bus, and as I was walking down the street, I noticed that on my side of the cross street, there were about 10 people standing at 5.45 in the morning, and no, nothing else was happening, there was no traffic, there was nothing else going on, but there were about 10 people standing on my side of the sidewalk. I had just moved there from Atlanta, Georgia. I got to the sidewalk, and I stood there and wondered what was going on. And finally, I asked the guy next to me, and I said, why is anyone crossing the street? And he said, oh, they really enforce the law here in Seattle. I said, what do you mean? He said, they're really, you know, they come down hard on jaywalking, so you're not, unless that's flashing, you're not supposed to cross the street. And I said, but there's no cars here. And he said, well, I'm just telling you what the, the law is. And I remember thinking to myself, I will own this city, right? I mean, <laughs> and what was interesting is I thought to myself, well, I'm going, there's no cars, because what's the purpose of the law? It's to keep me from getting hit by a car, and if there aren't any cars, I'm good to go. And so I crossed the street, and it was funny. Guess who crossed right after me? The guy I asked. And then about six or seven other people 
So what's the point to that story? The question I'm going to ask you this morning to think about as you begin is generally speaking, are you a rule keeper or a rule breaker? Generally speaking. I mean, hopefully we're all law-abiding citizens, but I mean, what's just sort of the inclination of your heart? Do you tend to be one who sort of pushes it? Or do you sort of be one that you're going to obey every time? I mean, most of the people at the sidewalk that day, there was a little law's law. And the question that you have to ask, at least I ask oftentimes, is what is the purpose of the law? So if I'd have gotten a debate with one of those people, I'd have said, well, the purpose of the law is this. And so therefore, to cross the street isn't actually breaking the law if I'm fulfilling its, its purpose. And they would say, breaking the law is breaking the law. And see, when, as we come to this passage today, it's the last time Jesus will be in a synagogue, at least in Luke's account, in Luke's gospel. And he ends up getting in a dispute over the law. And the question that will come up with the law over and over when you talk to Jesus is what is the law, or maybe more specifically, what is the rule that you have invented to make sure you keep the law versus what is the purpose of the law itself? So we're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at basically a woman's liberation, a leader's indignation, the ruler of the synagogue. Remember, it said he was indignant and then a believer's imagination. And the, the, the last point, I think, is going to be very important for us. Um, let's look first at, at the woman's liberation. Notice in verse 10, it says, Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And so... What's happening? What's the context? Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. He did that every now and then. And there's a woman, he notices. And what we're told about the woman is that she had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Now, this is a kind of detail that's really important when you're reading the Gospels, and especially the Gospel of Luke, because Luke is a medical doctor. So, so Luke is, is going to give you medical detail whenever medical detail is important. And if Luke attributes a disease or a malady or an illness or sickness to something else, you ought to pay attention. And so Luke doesn't say she, had, she was bent at the waist for 18 years because of an accident or because of the way she was born. He says that she was that way because of a disabling spirit. Most, most uh, people who you know, read this and they comment on these things, um, if I remember it right, her, her condition was probably something called uh, spondylitis ankylopoetica, which basically means she was bent at the waist and her vertebrae had fused together. Now, if you want to know if that would be a miserable way to live, go home today, bend over at the waist, and try and do anything in your house that you have to do for five minutes. Try and talk to your family, try and look at people. It's nearly impossible. And we are told that this woman experienced this for 18 long years. Now, remember what last week, what the common, the, 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 the common uh, thought about disease and, and maladies was what? Remember last week they came to Jesus and they thought that because a tower had fallen on some people or because some pilot had murdered somebody, they must be worse sinners, right? So imagine this woman going to synagogue and the, the attitude people would have had toward her, they look at her and say, oh, I wonder what she did, Bob. Must have been bad. And you wonder what she felt. Maybe she felt, I wonder what I did. What did I do? How sinful am I? In other words, she must have been riddled by guilt and by shame. 
And I wonder if people in the, in the congregation, in the synagogue, after 18 years, probably even just stopped noticing her, I would imagine. And here she is. She's in the synagogue. Jesus is in the synagogue, and he notices her. And Jesus does something really interesting. He says in verse 12, it says, When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. Now, so Jesus sees the woman, and Jesus does something crazy, actually. I mean, this whole passage, the more you get into it, it's really sort of crazy. So Jesus, remember we talked a few weeks ago, the, the way that they sort of uh, lodged your importance was how close you were to the front in the synagogue. And Jesus sees this woman who is bent at the waist, and Jesus is at the front teaching. Jesus calls this bent woman to the front of the whole synagogue and basically says, guess who the most important person here is? right now. He didn't say that, but his actions say that. And he looks at her and says, woman, you are freed from your disability. And it says, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. The King James, I like the King James better. It says, woman, thou art loosed, period. You're free now. Notice he made that statement before he even touched her. He made the statement before she rose up. He made the statement before anything. He said, you are freed. From what was she freed? We know that she was freed from probably guilt. We know that she was freed from the shame because now she could stand up. Imagine standing up for the first time in 18 years and looking into the eyes instead of the waist or the feet of the one who had just healed you. She's free from her guilt and shame. And Jesus says she's free from her, as the Heidelberg Catechism would say, the first question says, he has freed me from the tyranny of the devil. You see, remember John chapter 9 when the man was born blind and and people said, who sinned, him or his parents? And Jesus said, this was the case so that God may be glorified. I don't know if that's what he'd say about this woman, but what we know now is that she will glorify God. Because she has been freed from bondage to Satan. I think that's why Luke d- d- says that she was free from a disabling spirit rather than just saying she was sick. And that's why Jesus says you are freed rather than say you are healed. He says you are healed a lot of times to people. But here he says to the woman, you are now free. It's not just free to walk around and free to stand up, but you're free from the tyranny of bondage to Satan. And so what does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us. Whenever you see these passages in the New Testament where Jesus is performing miracles or he's teaching in the Sabbath, he's, he's teaching, but he's also the whole event is meant to teach us something. Because at the end of the day, you and I are exactly like that bent woman. We're not like that physically, most of us, but, but spiritually speaking, we all are born with a load of sin, this burden that we carry. We all are born under the tyranny of the devil. That he, he, he can't harm us or touch us without God doing but anything, but remember in the book of Job? Satan went and said, God, can I test Job? And he said, knock yourself out, do it. And how does, what does Jesus do for us? Jesus does the exact same thing. What does it mean to be freed? What does it mean to, have, to, be, to be freedom? Remember Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. What does that even mean? Because most people I know don't feel particularly free. First of all, freedom for us is that Jesus frees us from the curse of sin. Remember when Adam and Eve came and they, they sinned in, in the garden and brought curse over all of creation. Jesus, by his death on the cross, is able to, to, to take that curse upon himself in order to bring new creation. So Jesus frees us from the curse. The other thing Jesus frees us from is he frees us from the guilt of sin. 
In other words, I, I love my, I have one of my professors in seminary is a guy named Steve Brown. Many of you have heard him. He's an incredibly deep voice. He's on the radio. And he would always say, you feel guilty because you are guilty, right? <laughs> you ever feel guilty? It's probably because you are, as am I. And yet Jesus has cleansed us from the guilt of sin. In fact, the doctrine we call the doctrine of justification, what happens is Jesus lives the life we should have lived, perfect and spotless, and he goes to the cross on our behalf. And he bears the, 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 the burden, he bears the curse, he bears the punishment that you and I deserve, and as a result, he is declared cursed. We, on the other hand, are declared righteous. In other words, this trade-off happens. We, he receives our sin and guilt, and we receive his righteousness and goodness. So now in the sight of God, you are no longer guilty. The place where most of us stumble is we, could, we can nod our head and say, okay, I understand that we're freed from the curse and we're freed from the guilt of sin. Jesus forgave me. But do you really feel free from the power of sin? Like if you think about the woman, she definitely felt free from the power of this bondage because suddenly she could stand up straight and walk. Suddenly she could actually move. Suddenly she could actually praise God. Notice that's what she, exactly what she does. It says, he laid hands on her. Immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. She worshiped. Do you struggle with the power of sin? Let me, let me ask you a different way. Is there some besetting sin that you've probably struggled with your whole life? If you're a human being and I ask for a show of hands, you ought to be raising them. Every one of us has some besetting sin or sins, and we've thought to ourselves, I'm never going to be free of this. I'm never going to be done with it. It's just, it overwhelms me. It burdens me. That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says we're free from the curse of sin, we're free from the guilt of sin, and we're free from the power of sin. It doesn't own you anymore. It's just like this woman. Woman, you are loosed. And I wish I could say to all of you in the congregation, congregation, you are loosed. Be who God created you to be. You're free now. Remember we talked last week, the, the question of repentance, is it, the, where we stumble, is when it comes to the, to the point of whether or not we change, right? We can all confess our sins, we can, we can all admit that we've sinned, we can all feel bad about our sin, but the question is, are we going to actually move in a different direction? And what the gospel says is that Jesus, through his death on the cross, and ultimately sending the Holy Spirit, was, has empowered us to be free from our sin. And the question is, will we live free from our sin? And let me give you a, a, a little warning here, that if you do try to live free from your sin, and if you do try to live free from external laws and rules, some people will become indignant and not appreciate that fact. Some people will get upset if you don't sort of, if, if you cross the street when maybe you shouldn't, they didn't think you should cross the street. That's what happens next. Jesus has freed this woman. I mean, I can't imagine being there. And most of the people rejoice. Most of the people, can't, you know, they rejoice for this woman. They have compassion. They have hope. They have joy. They worship. Except at least one person. That's the ruler of the synagogue. The guy that's in charge of everything. Notice what he says. It says, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which to work. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. In the first service, I thought it was good. People actually snickered when I read that the first time. Because it is the epitome of foolishness. I mean, think about what's happened here. This woman has just been healed in the sight of everybody, right in the front. And the leader stands up. I assume Jesus and the woman are still there. And instead of speaking to Jesus, he speaks to the crowd. 
No more that day. If you want to be healed, you can come Monday through Saturday, but don't come today. Actually, for them, it would have been Sunday through, through Friday, but nonetheless. There's six days during the week that you can be healed. Come on those days. You don't need to come on Sunday and work and break the law. Now, the question is, why would he be so uptight about that? Why would he be so, so, so wrapped around the axle? I think at the end of the day, he's afraid of something. Right? Every, everyone, you know, when you hear, you often hear the cliche that everyone hates change. Have you heard that? Everyone hates change. That's not true. People don't hate change. They hate threat. And oftentimes, change change implies some kind of threat. And so the question is, things are changing in Jerusalem. Things are changing in the synagogue. Because I don't imagine before this, too many guys walked up and healed bent women. And the people were going crazy. Things are changing. So what is the threat that this man is now facing? Well, he's facing the threat of losing his power. He's facing the threat of, of, of being in control of everything. And because of that, he tries to shut it down. He tries to shut him down. And he does so, by the way, by quoting part of the fourth commandment. You've heard me say before, if you want to argue with Jesus about minor points of the law, you're going to not have a good time. So this man implies that the Pharisees and the leaders of the synagogue would imply that healing is work. Even though, did you notice what Jesus did? He said, you're free, and he touched her. He didn't do anything, but nonetheless, they thought it was work, and so they said, come on some other day. And what Jesus, notice what Jesus says to him. It says, then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now, what's Jesus' point there? Jesus actually takes the man, what the man has said and uses it against him. He's implying that the Sabbath, right, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, and on the seventh day you shall rest. The interpretation that the ruler gives stops right there. But what the commandment actually says, on the seventh day you shall, you shall rest, neither you nor your ox, and king, your ox or your ass or your manservant or your male servant, any of these shall labor. And Jesus says, you hypocrites. Because even you give water to your livestock on Sunday, or Saturday in their case. Even you on the Sabbath will take... Now, by the way, they had about 39 different rules about how you were able to water your ox that made it legal. But at the end of the day, they still took care of their animals on the Sabbath day. And Jesus says, if you're going to take care of an animal on the Sabbath day, how much more this woman, this daughter of Abraham, this daughter of promise. And if you think about it, it's almost sick because the, the viewpoint of the ruler of the synagogue, if they're both looking at this bent woman who has suffered for 18 years, the, the perspective of the ruler of the synagogue is this. Hey, lady, come on. It's been 18 years. Is one more day going to kill you? Is one more day going to hurt? Can, can you just come back on Monday? That way order will be restored. No one will think I'm not in charge. Everything will be cool. 18 years, one day is not going to kill you. Where Jesus, on the other hand, looks at this woman and the perspective seems to be 18 years. 18 years you have, you, you have borne this? Not for another minute. Not for another minute. And in fact, Jesus not only is not for another minute, but he actually, in the process of healing her, gives a great lesson on the purpose of Sabbath. 
that the purpose of Sabbath is not only to rest, but the purpose of Sabbath is to rest and to restore. And the purpose of Sabbath, according to our confessions even, is to rest and restore and to participate in that restoration. In other words, to perform acts of mercy. You see, what happens on the Sabbath is you and I are getting a taste of what all of the uh, the future is going to be like after Jesus returns and everything is made right. There will be this nonstop, never-ending time of Sabbath rest. Rest from our sins, rest from our works, rest from everything. But that doesn't mean you won't be doing anything. We still participate in the restoration of creation. So one day, all of creation will be restored. All of creation will be the way it should be. And you and I are given one day in seven in order to actually make sure we are participating in that creation restoration. Purposely and specifically with regard to acts of mercy. Is that how you spend your Sunday? I mean, you've heard me preach on the Sabbath before. I have, a, I have an opinion about it. Like, remember what if God came to you and said, you know, do you feel stressed out? Do you feel like you just got too much on your plate? What if I could just give you one day where you don't have to do anything? What if I gave you one day where not only you you don't have to do anything, but you have an opportunity to serve in all the ways you think you want to serve? You could go serve the poor. You could serve the homeless. You could serve kids. You could do all these things. What if I gave you one day where you could do that? What would you say? And I think about when I preach, everyone raises their hand. Of course I want a day like that. And the answer is you have that day. Jesus has given us a day, not just to rest. It's not just a day to put your feet up on the couch. It's a day also to participate in the restoration of other people. Do you know anyone who could use restoration? Well, you have an opportunity to participate in that. Jesus has given us a day to participate in that. And notice what happens next. It says, um, as he said these things... um, All his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. You know, you're getting to a point in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus just keeps, he keeps sort of narrowing the window. In fact, the next passage is about the narrow gate, right? And in other words, you're getting to a point, if if you're not uh, either offended by Jesus or rejoicing in Jesus by this time, you haven't been listening. If, or if you don't have an opinion about Jesus by this time in the Gospel of Luke, you haven't been listening. In fact, if you don't have a strong opinion, I think Luke would say, you don't get it. it just this, this morning, I pulled up my news feed, and there's a, a, there's a Keller Daily thing, and there's a great thing by Tim Keller I'm going to read to you. He said that Jesus, who, who unites such apparent extremes of character into such an integrated and balanced whole, demands an extreme response from every one of us. He forces our hand at every turn in the story. This man who throws open the gates of the kingdom to everyone then warns that the most devout insiders that their standing in the kingdom is in jeopardy without fruitfulness is forever closing down our options. This man who can be weakened by a touch in the crowd on his way to bring a little girl back from the dead is a man you dare not tear your eyes from. We haven't even yet witnessed the true depths of his restraint or the heights of his power. He is both the rest and the storm, both the victim and the wielder of the flame, and you must accept him or reject him on the basis of both. Either you'll have to kill him or you'll have to crown him. The one thing you can't do is just say, what an interesting guy. Jesus has sort of laid down a gauntlet with the healing of this woman, and the leaders have been publicly put to shame. And so now their choice is to either bow to Jesus or to kill him. They decide to kill him. 
The rest of the people rejoice. They're, they're excited at what has happened. And they're excited that maybe this might be the one. And I love what Jesus does next because he ties these two kingdom parables to the healing of this woman. And, and at first, it might not seem to make sense until we look. I, I hope it makes sense when we're done. Notice what Jesus says in verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So Jesus basically, he, he demands this response. People are either, either shamed by him and reject him, or they rejoice and accept him. And Jesus says, therefore... So that means whatever he's going to say in these parables explains what is happening with this woman or explain the point he's trying to make. And in some sense, the point he's making is this. That do you people rejoicing? You see what's happening with this woman? Nothing. It's nothing compared to what's coming. In other words, it's great that this woman is healed, but imagine a restoration of the whole universe. Imagine a restoration of all of the planet. Imagine everything that you can possibly imagine being the way it's supposed to be. And the reason I called this last point a believer's imagination is because when Jesus tells these two parables, you have to either exercise an incredible amount of imagination or you have to think this guy is crazy. Because he says, what is the kingdom of God like? First of all, he says, it is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And if you were a, a, a peasant, or a, you know, I don't know if they had middle class in Palestine, if you were the people listening to Jesus, and he said that, you would probably look around, what's he talking about? You see, because we tend to think on the smallness of the mustard seed, right? That, that if you just have the, the faith of a mustard seed, because a mustard seed was the smallest seed in the garden. But what's more incredible about this parable is that the mustard plant only gets to be about four feet high. So what's Jesus saying? He's saying that, that here's what the kingdom of God's like. It's like if you took that little mustard seed and the guy plants it in the garden and it doesn't just grow, but it grows so big that all the birds in the air can land in it. And Ezekiel would say it grows so big that it actually covers the whole world. And all the nations of the earth can fit in it. And they're all around it. That's what it's like. That this tiny little mustard seed, if you can imagine that it actually grows so big that it covers the whole world, you have to have a pretty good imagination to think about that. But you have to have an imagination. The same is true of the parable of the woman with the leaven. Notice when he says to her, he says, again, what is it? Shall I compare the kingdom of God? He said, it's like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And again, he, basically he's saying, it's like a woman who took a pinch of leaven and, put, and just threw it, is the language there, and just threw it into 50 pounds of flour. I don't know how much that is, relatively speaking, but it seemed like it'd be quite a bit. Most people say that would make a loaf of bread big enough to feed 150 people. There wouldn't be an oven big enough to make that kind of bread in Palestine. And Jesus said, but here's what it's like. This little tiny pinch of leaven, it seems like it's not a big deal, but it will infiltrate everything until it is so big that you can't avoid it, you can't get around it, and it will just be an amazement and a wonder in everyone's eyes. That's pretty big, but you've got to have imagination. 
You see, I think most Christians where we fail is not even in the area of faith. We fail in the area of imagination. Right? You say, oh, I, have faith, I have faith that you know, I'm going to make it through this. We're sort of like Eeyore with faith. Right? Oh, I have faith that we're going to make it. I have faith we're going to make the budget. I have faith. you know. The question is not necessarily do you have faith, but do you have faith and do you have imagination? Can you imagine what Jesus is doing? Can you imagine what the world will look like when everything has been completely covered with the kingdom of God, when everything is the way it ought to be? Can you imagine that? What would your life look like if that happened? What would your life look like if things were the way they're supposed to be? If you were having faith for, the, for, the, for what Jesus is going to do in your life, can you imagine what that would look like? Can you imagine reconciled relationships? Can you imagine uh, mercy being done? Can you imagine people being blessed? What do you imagine when you think about what Jesus is capable of doing in your life? And where do you start with that? You know, I took a chance this morning, and it worked. We'll see if it works th- this time. Um, right before I walked out, for, for the last service, I, I made a decision. I thought, you know, it might be good for you guys to hear what I imagine sometimes. That's always dangerous. You see, remember I've been going through this, this communication course where I've been through the, I've gone away for three weeks and I've come back and one of the weeks was you, you, they identify your shtick, which is basically how you deal with threat. It's very negative. And your purpose like they look at your whole life and say, what has God been doing and what does he seem to be doing and what, seems to be, what do you seem to be capable of doing that other people don't do, that God hasn't gifted them to do? And they identify that. And so the, the, the test, of course, is are you living in your purpose? Are you living in your stick? And one of the exercises they made us do was to write a letter to anyone that we wanted to. They gave us eight minutes. They sat us in a room and said, you have eight minutes. Pick someone and write a letter that is addressed to, to someone three years from now. In other words, the assumption is you've lived every single day of the last three years in the purpose that God has for you. You've lived every single minute of every single day trusting what God is going to do in you and through you and for you. What does that look like? Write that person. You have eight minutes. And so you have to write fast, of course, and you have to just get it to come off the top of your head. And so I thought here's, I would tell you what came off the top of my head when I had to imagine what my life looks like if the gospel is successful in my life as the pastor of our church. And by the way, this is me dreaming. So I'm just saying that because what, what you're hearing here is not, it's even written in pencil, not ink. Um, it's just me dreaming, imagining. And so I wrote my girls. The date is January 15, 2018. It says, Dear Girls, I hope you're doing well. I wanted to catch you up on a few things I thought you'd appreciate. As you know, last month we changed the name of the church, right, just dreaming, um, (laughs) from First Evangelical Presbyterian Church to New Song. We treated it like a launch, and our new, huge, multi-ethnic choir rocked all three services. Speaking of services, they're so packed now that we're planning on playing another congregation near Maple Valley. Perhaps the most exciting thing is the upcoming launch of New Song Ministries. In the planning right now is a new preschool we talked about for years to provide affordable childcare for single moms, that and a thrift store to provide assistance and not only for single parents, but also for refugees we care for. This thing has so much potential. I'm in talks right now with a friend. She was actually in the room. She was quite shocked when I read this. Um, with a friend of mine named, uh, I won't tell you her name, to come and direct it. And I, I love you guys. And then dad. Now, is all that stuff I read possible? Absolutely. The only thing that keeps you from doing that is the, the, imagining that it's possible. 
And so let me ask you this. When you imagine what God can do in your life, in our church, what do you think of? What does that look like to you? Maybe you should take some time and write it down. The other thing I'm going to challenge you with is this, that all of these things that Jesus said, they are like mustard seeds. He doesn't say you sit back and you, you wait until this big thing happens. He says it's like a mustard seed. It's like a little thing, a little, it's one step at a time. And so what are some, some mustard seeds, if you will, that you can do even this week that move the kingdom of God forward, that move you and us toward what, what this great imagined kingdom might be that's actually better than we could imagine? So, for example, can you invite one person to Easter services? You'd be surprised. I, I've, I've almost never met a person who didn't say yes to an Easter service invite. What if every one of our members invited someone, one person or one couple to Easter? Can you imagine what that would look like? Can you imagine how, how thick that would be in here? That would be awesome. What if you just walked across the, the street to one of your neighbor's houses that you haven't talked to maybe ever? And just introduced yourself, right? Jesus says that's the way the kingdom of God begins to happen, the way it infiltrates the whole world. And the question is, will you and I participate in it? And will we imagine that, that it can actually happen? I think it can. That's, that's why I'm still here. That's why I'm a pastor at all. So think about that. Now, let me pray for us, and we will continue with the Lord's Supper. Father, um, I just pray now that you would give us, as a church, a vivid imagination and not a vivid imagination for, for just uh, to, for imagination's sake, but a vivid imagination of what things might look like when they are the way they are supposed to be. When, when the community is being blessed by our church, whether or not they, they believe or not, whether where the poor be taken care of, where people are worshiping, where people are coming to know Jesus on a daily basis. Is that possible? Absolutely. Enable us to imagine those things that we might actually have faith for those things as well. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen and amen.